Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. What does it take to solve an intimidating problem that many feel is unsolvable? Andrew Feldman, co-founder and CEO of Cerebras Systems can tell you because he and his team engineered an unprecedented technological breakthrough. They set out to build a new class of computer system to accelerate artificial intelligence work. In the end, they built the fastest AI accelerator based on the largest processor in the industry. Tune in to hear his story, his thoughts on building and selling companies, and his career advice for aspiring founders. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So, welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. I'm very happy and pleased to have today uh, Andrew Feldman, who is the founder and CEO of uh, Cerebras Systems. Andrew, I think that it's the first time we have someone that comes from, let's call it the chip industry. Um, so there are many topics that I'd like to cover and with you know your permission, some of them will be like basics for, for laymen like us to understand, you know, what's so important about the stuff that you are doing and why is it different? The fact that we have, you know, some vendors all of our, all of us heard about Intel and, and, and Nvidia and Qualcomm. So yet another chip solution. Why, why, why is it needed? Abhishek, chips are like cars. You, you build them for a purpose. Some of them are fun to drive on the weekend. Others are designed to move bricks and garbage. Some are good for taking kids to, uh, to soccer practice. And others are, are good for moving freight across the country. And chips have different purposes. And they make different trade-offs. And, and if you try and move concrete and two-by-fours in a minivan, you know how difficult it is to use the wrong tool for the job. We saw an opportunity with the rise of a new type of work, artificial intelligence work. And we saw an opportunity to build a chip that was purpose-built for, for that job. And when you build a part for a specific job, it carries with it tremendous advantages. As it's difficult to take kids to in a carpool with a Ford truck, and it's easy in a minivan, and conversely, it's, it's hard to move lumber in a minivan. So it is with chips that if you try and use the wrong processor, the wrong chip for a problem, it takes weeks, sometimes months to get an answer. And so we saw an opportunity in late 2015, early 2016, 
to build a chip that was optimized for AI work. And we came to believe that AI work would be an increasing portion of the total work in the compute landscape. So using your, your analogy, which I like, uh, can you share why does or what are the characteristics that necessitate a new car when it comes to AI? Sure. AI posed a very unusual challenge. The actual calculations being done are relatively trivial, but there's a huge number of them. But the hard part is moving the data after the calculations have been completed. So it, it fit in this category where the compute was relatively easy. And what was hard was the communication of results because it's a network. And so you're going to do some calculations, move the results, do some more calculations, move the results, do some more calculations. And it was the moving the results, which was very, very difficult for all existing hardware. It broke CPUs. GPUs weren't good at it. And we saw an opportunity to build a new part optimized for those two characteristics. And so it had a huge number of smaller cores, hundreds of thousands of them. And we were able to move information thousands of times faster by building a very big chip and keeping the information on a single piece of silicon. When I'm looking into, um, into this achievement, which sounds staggering, and I would like to dwell a bit more into it, where did it come from? Is it you sleeping, uh, thinking about, hey, I have a great idea? So what happened? How, how, how did it mature? First, we'll, we'll tell everybody, we built the biggest chip ever made. In the history of compute, we built the biggest chip, not by a little bit, but by 56x. So our chip has 2.6 trillion transistors. And the largest competitor has about 40 billion. We are you know, 2.556 trillion transistors large. It was a, a monster accomplishment. It came, Avishai, from a collection of computer architecture fundamentals. We needed more cores. And to get more cores, you need more transistors. And you can do that two ways. You can build lots of little chips and try and tie them together, or you can build a bigger chip. And traditionally, we, the industry, had built little chips and tried to tie them together. And that has real problems because it almost never scales linearly. If work takes an amount of time on one chip, it never takes half the time on two chips. And it never takes twice the power because you've added an element they have to communicate. And that takes time and power. And somebody has to break up the problem so it can work on both. And as you go bigger and bigger, as you go from one to a hundred chips, the amount of time it takes to break up the problem so that it can run on a hundred increases exponentially. And the amount of benefit you get from each additional compute unit shrinks dramatically. In a study published in, in 2022, professors at Purdue showed that if you have 16 graphics processing units and you want to go 10 times faster, you don't do that with 160 GPUs. It takes you 800. Now, 800 uses a lot more than 10x the power. It uses 50x the power. And it's 50x the cost to get 10x the performance. 
we saw that pattern. It's called sublinear scaling. And we thought to ourselves that the other option is to go with a bigger chip. So the extrapolation, what you said, to achieve what you were able to achieve, you need a small nuclear power near uh, the chip? The data centers that you read about, big hyperscalers, frequently take more than 20 megawatts of power. So that's a small city. So what's the difference with, with the big investment that the big megascalers are doing, um, the web scalers, you know, try and putting a lot of AI. So they are, they are suffering from the same... Same problem. Same problem. Some of them are building their own chips because it was so expensive. Some of them are building their own switches because it was so expensive to link them together. Right? Linking chips, little chips together became so important that NVIDIA went out and acquired a networking company, Mellanox, so they could tie them together. All of that is because in this workload, the communication, the movement of data is fundamental. Yeah, the, the point that you were uh, raising earlier. So coming back to, um, to this aha moment, you understand that there is a problem in the world. You want to solve it. You mentioned earlier that it was not over uh, during sleep time. So what happened? We had lots of ideas. I, I think these aren't sitting on a park bench with an idea arriving like a child from Zeus's head fully formed, right? That, that's not the way they come. You articulate a problem. The problem is, is that this workload is different than others. It is extremely communication intensive. Its memory patterns are different. What choices are available to you to solve this? And we explored many of them. The obvious one was to go bigger. Now, we're not the only ones to go bigger. Between 2015 and 2020, NVIDIA doubled the size of their chips from 400 to 800. So they knew bigger was better too. What we were the first to do is to sort of set aside all the world's telling you it can't be done. It can't get bigger than that. It'll never work. You will fail. And set all that aside and let our minds go. Say, what if we use the entire wave? What if instead of an 800 square millimeter part, we were to build a 46,000 square millimeter part? How might we do that? And what would the advantages be? And what, once we understood for ourselves what the advantages could be, then we had to set about the multi-year process of making it and solving all these problems that everybody said were sure to break us. They're always sort of older men, usually, with a mouthful of, it'll never work. <laughs> it'll never work. I tried that when I was in grad school. You were in grad school in the Kennedy administration, and you have to listen to them. And you have to think about it, but you don't have to believe there it'll never work. You try and suck the marrow out of the, the expertise without the, the overlay of what you can't do. Yeah, so there are so many follow-up questions that I would like to ask you. One of them, you know, you mentioned mainly old guys saying, what, what happens if a young guy is saying it can't work? It's even worse because he doesn't have your expertise and he doesn't have the... Uh... You have to decide in your career what sort of problems you're going to attack. And you have to decide if you're more afraid of failing in pursuit of a really interesting big problem or succeeding at a mediocre problem. Which is a bigger failure? 
But this is not like a big problem. It's a huge problem, and it's a huge problem. It's not like doubling the uh, the size. It's it's, it's like uh, playing in a different ball, completely different. It is. Yeah. We 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 love doing fearless engineering. We love solving problems where we don't know the answer when we start. We love solving problems where there isn't a safety net. All those uh, existing solutions probably are coming with, and, and we know, heavy lifting, a lot of dollars with the tooling. Now, once you create a new, completely new ecosystem, you need to create everything also uh, over there. Mm-hmm. It's not just breaking the ground in terms of the size. It's also everything should be different. Everything, everything. When you build something truly revolutionary, there are no components in a catalog for you to order to surround it. There's no heat sink. There's no cold plate. There's no motherboard. There's no package. There's no cooling system. You have to inspire your vendors also. You have to pick extraordinary vendors and you have to inspire them so that they jump on board with you, that they believe it's unbelievably cool, that they want to be a part of solving problems that others can't solve. I don't think we became engineers to, to do a little bit better at stuff other people had solved, right? I don't think anybody sort of decided, yeah, you know, I want to be a professional engineer so I can do sort of incremental work, uh, uh, things that other people have solved. I, I think we just sort of love the pursuit of the, the challenging problems. And we surround ourselves, both our vendors and our team our investors with people who love to solve hard problems. So walk me up, maybe give me like two or three examples. Probably you have more than a dozen of things that did not exist before and that you needed to create or, or manufacture. The largest part when we began the project drew about 350 watts. That's, that was its power draw. We drew 17 kilowatts. Nobody had ever delivered that much power to a chip. Nobody had ever delivered that much power across a motherboard. Nobody had ever cooled a chip that was pulling that much power. There were no vendors. There were no parts. When we began, everything was built from scratch. And then you find yourself, what, three, four, five years into the journey that you're cracking one problem after the other? Or was, was exactly. there? Exactly. I tell people a story, Avishai, of guys having a beer at the base of Mount Everest before it had been summited. And the guys, some guys were about to go up and they're having a drink with some guys who failed. And the guys who failed say, you know, about the midpoint, it's really, really hard. And we had to turn around and come back. And the guys go out and they climb to the top of Everest and they come back down and they're back in the bar and they meet those guys and they lean with, they buy them a beer and they say, you know what, where you told us it was really hard at the midpoint, that wasn't the hardest part. Where everybody said we would fail was where everybody had previously failed. And we solved that very quickly. But then we were in truly uncharted world. Nobody had even got there to fail. And we had to solve problems that, that nobody had seen before. It took years. And you have to believe in your methodology. You have to believe in your team. You have to have a hypothesis. You need to learn from each failure. You need to do better each time, step by step. I was in business school and my, uh, my housemates were starting a company. And I told them that they should get somebody from business school to write them a, a business plan. And 
I recommended some, some of my friends. My friends turned my housemates down. So my housemates came back to me and said, why don't you write it? I'm not really interested in the networking industry. I, I think it's plumbing and it's boring. And they said, come on, do it. And I wrote it. And then I spent the next 15 years in the networking industry. We built that company. We sold it for $280 million in 1998. We began another company and we took that public in 2000. I was with another company that we sold to Dell. And then in 2006, it looked to me like networking was less interesting than it had been 10 years before. It looked like it had matured. There was less innovation. And I thought that there was an opportunity in a new space in compute, particularly around more efficient compute. So I started a company called C-Micro and we were pioneers in energy efficient computing and AMD acquired us. Worked there for a while and took some time off. Then we got the band back together again and began thinking about what we might build. We wrote two things on the whiteboard. We wanted to work together again and we wanted to move an industry. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about ego. It was we, we really wanted to, to leave a, an impact on an industry. And my co-founders came up with the idea, began kicking around an idea of what the AI workload might require from a new type of computer. And they asked a very simple question. Why would a machine that was built for pushing pixels to a monitor, why would a graphics processing engine be the right machine for an entirely new type of work? And with that, we began exploring what we might be able to build, what the graphics processing unit was good at, what it was not good at. And we came to believe we could build a much, much better mousetrap. When you look at it, do you see the revolution or, you know, the, the future innovation in AI coming mainly in hardware or software? It's both. AI has made tremendous strides in software. AI was effectively dead until they began using GPUs in 2013, 2014, 2015. AI was all theory and it wasn't making any progress. Left foot software, right foot hardware. You need to march and you can only hop so far. If you don't have faster hardware, then the industry will grind to a halt. On a more philosophical angle, Elon Musk said lately that, you know, AI might be one of the greatest threats on humankind. Do you share his view? Elon's a, a polymath, an extraordinary entrepreneur and visionary. I don't agree with this. I don't see it as a grand threat. I think like every technology, it has the opportunity for tremendous good and, and tremendous evil both. I'd say the same for nuclear power. I'd say the same for any number of monstrous technologies. Their very power can be used for good or for bad. The, the technologies in AI can be used for evil. The exact same technology can be used for such good, it's extraordinary. And so it's it challenges on us to manage it. I agree. Throughout the history you've mentioned, you kind of went through it uh, very fast, but you sold some companies. Is there a moment in time that you decide to sell a company or is it just, you know, a bad day <laughs> and then you decide to sell it? <laughs> it's the hardest decision a CEO has. I think it's a tremendous mistake to build a company to sell it. I think it's a tremendous mistake to have a religious view 
that you have to go public. You are using other people's money in what we do. You are building a company in partnership with people who are lending you part of their career. And you're the steward of that. And you have to keep an open mind. There is a price that you should sell your company for. Such a price exists. There are also prices that you absolutely shouldn't sell your company for. When you sell your company, usually you've turned down many offers along the way. The flip side is when you go public, there's often much more upside after you go public than before. It should never be about the CEO's ego. I wouldn't work for someone whose ego was tied up in being a public market CEO. I'd never work for them. Your job is to deliver the best you can for your employees and your investors. Sometimes people are going to offer you enough that it makes sense to sell a company. And other times, the path forward will be best using public money and getting, getting to the public markets. Is it just the, the right amount of money or are there other factors that you weigh in? There's risk. What does it mean to go public? It means you trade professional investors, venture capitalists, for people like my father as your investor, right? You trade the most sophisticated investors in the world for common people, everyday people. You have to be ready for that. There's an, a new obligation that comes with that. There's a weight in regulation. But historically, that has been a tremendous path to greatness. If you can see that path, you should take it. Would this be a good and accurate way to describe your role? Yes. And in such cases, what do you do? Are you like uh, walking in the woods? You have like a, a friend that uh, you go to speak to? Uh, you meditate? I'll tell you a, a funny story. We had an offer to sell my last company, C-Micro, for about $250 million. I'm lying in bed with my wife and I tell her, She says, a quarter of a billion dollars. You saw your company, right? I said, no. And she was so angry at me. And four months later, we got an offer at $300 million. I said, honey, we got an offer at $300 million. She goes, you saw the company. I said, no, I didn't sell And so I went to one of my mentors. Before I got to him, we got an offer at $325. She was just shouting at me. She was like, Don't micro-optimize. I mean, it's a good offer. Call up one of my mentors. I said, what do I do? He said, stop talking to your wife. (laughs) (laughs) What we do is extremely lonely. If your parents aren't in the industry, they don't understand either. And they don't understand the dynamics of careers. My father's been at the same company, the same institution for 55 years. Many of our parents are from different cultures or traditions and usually have a small number of mentors or people who, whose opinions you, you rely on for the hardest decisions. But at the end of the day, it's on you. So very true. Now, looking into your career, and there are you know, young people listening to us and, and they're seeking maybe to, uh, to found a company and looking for your advice for entrepreneurs that are seeking, you know, the next step. Share with them tips to the new career. What are the areas they should focus on? 
thinking very, very carefully about how the customer would use it, how it would be consumed, how it would be sold. That's the mistake engineers frequently make is to fall in love with the technology and not to think carefully about its delivery to the customer, its consumption by the customer. Founding a company is extraordinarily hard. And I think because the skills needed are divergent and non-correlated. And I I think if you are a non-technical founder, you need to think carefully about what you bring to your technical founders, your co-founders, and how you build trust and how you work with engineers. One of the things that's worked well for me is a brutal honesty. The idea to build a big chip wasn't mine. The idea to focus on, on AI wasn't mine. But once we had it, I got us in front of customers quickly and easily. I got us in front of venture capitalists quickly and easily. We were able to raise money. Thinking carefully about the collection of things you need to build a company. You need technology and you need business. It would help you if this is your your goal to be sure your your professional network is filled with technologists and business people and customers, consumers of technology, so that when the stars align and people come together, somebody has an idea, you, you have the ability to gather different skills from different people. I think a sense of humor and a little humility <laughs> come a long way. I think... It's hard. You can get your, your butt kicked some days. And that happens. Be able to laugh at yourself, to learn quickly, to learn just constantly. Yeah, I think, Andrew, laugh at yourself is one of the greatest lessons that uh, I think uh, can be shared. Now, can you share with me also one of your mistakes? Avishai, I think one of the things young people should think about is they, they see resumes, they see LinkedIn links, and it's success, lots of bullets, another success, lots of bullets. I think you can just ignore all that because nobody puts up their failures. Bad idea, <laughs> six months wasted on a bad idea, millions of dollars destroyed because of arrogance. Nobody puts that on their LinkedIn. It's sort of like the Instagram version of a career, perfect angles. Perfect lighting, filters done properly. But that's not really the way careers went. I didn't know I was going to end up in tech. I thought I was going to finish my PhD and wasn't very interested when I began in networking and came to understand just how interesting and how important it is and played a small role in some important things. Oh, but I made so many mistakes. Hiring wrong people, betting on wrong markets, staying too long after I was acquired raising money from the wrong investors. After we sold C-Micron, this was a big win. You know, we sold it for 350 odd million dollars. One of my famous VCs said, go on vacation for two weeks and make a list of all your biggest mistakes and don't make them again. And I did. A lot of mistakes around hiring people. Really, really hard to know if an engineer is going to be not just smart, but productive. How people are going to handle pressure. In what we do in deep tech, it takes a lot of different engineers to make it work. It takes electrical engineers, it takes chip designers and electrical engineers and mechanical engineers and thermal engineers and cooling engineers. And then it takes embedded software to bring it up and to work around the hardware bugs. The bigger the project, the more important the project, the more people are required 
the more different engineering disciplines are brought to bear, the more important teamwork. If you focus on very small things, then a, a small group of exceptional people can go far. But if you are trying to do something big, something foundational, it's going to require collections of people and that means teams and that means you have to be able to work together, learn to compromise and think carefully and convince and disagree and commit. Now, going back to AI, what do you think the future lies in terms, let's say, of five years from now? What, what are you expecting to see? Well, Michelle, I've got a, an eight-year-old granddaughter and Netflix's recommendation engine is picking cartoons for her. I have a 90-year-old mother-in-law, and she's asking Alexa to play Frank Sinatra. Alexa picks a playlist that includes songs that she forgot she liked. Now, when you're touching both ends of the demographic spectrum, it's already worked its way into our lives. I think five years from now, there will be no part of how we live, work, or play that isn't touched by AI in one form or another. In all your career, you've mentioned 15 years in, in, uh, in networks and another startup. And uh, how, beside the story, the nice one about you sharing your, you know, the um, selling opportunity with your wife, how were how you able to, to balance work and life? If you really want to balance work and life, don't start a company. I wish I, I've balanced it in a way that works well for my wife and, and me, which is sequentially. After we sold the company, I took a year off. And after we sold the next one, I took a year off. I don't think they're CEOs of startups who will tell you that this is the thing to choose if you want a good work-life balance. And certainly not day-to-day -day while you're running the startup. Okay. <laughs> At least you're brutal honest with us, which is... I, I, I think that's true. I think this is hard and all-consuming. You have to decide if this is what you want. You have to find, find joy in building things with other people. I'll use your last sentence and try to ask you, we're kind of uh, coming to the end. Are you happy? I love what I do. Um, I love working on hard problems with super smart people. I'm not a great technologist. I build things with people. I build organizations. I build teams. I get great joy from watching them do amazing things. So you are right. <laughs> It's been my experience in my life that there are two types of people. There are people who are generally happy and people who aren't happy. The happy people are generally happy no matter what they're doing. <laughs> They, they, they're happy they're, they're happy at work they're happy at home they're pretty happy people and there are other people who are unhappy and no matter how good work is they find a way to complain to worry to whine and it's very hard to make an unhappy person happy I don't think it's something that that work does to you I think it's something you bring to work which is true by the way speaking about work how do you see the future of work do you see people coming back to office or or people will uh, you know Use COVID in the next 20 years, we won't see each other. <laughs> I think the nature of work has changed forever. Work for people under 30 is not a place. I see you have some gray hair, got some gray hair. For me, work is a place, <laughs> right? And for many of our young engineers, work's not a place. Not their desk when they're at work. They're sort of nomadic within the building. 
the advantage of gathering with some regularity for thinking together, that hasn't changed. We don't have good tools, Zoom, and it's not good for thinking together. And so the value of coming together regularly hasn't changed at all. But whether you need to be there every day, I think has changed forever. Yeah, so so it appears. Um, and, and I agree with you. I think that um, fundamentally we are socialized human beings, but it won't be the same. It won't be the same. I think that's right. Well, with this uh, positive note, I would like to thank you, Andrew, for a fascinating uh, dialogue and for uh, being sincere and open and sharing uh, your history, but also personal thoughts and, and background. It was a pleasure and thank you. I wish I thank you and the team for, for having me. I, I appreciate this fun conversation. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Charlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.